Here's the story of one of Concern's longest standing members of staff, who has quite a tale to tell. Whether helping refugees in Liberia or chatting to supporters from his office, he has been fighting poverty with Concern for more than 30 years. Here's Kevin Byrne's story. Well, first off, Gavin, um, I may have been born in Dublin, but I, I always reckoned I was conceived in Clare and I'm known as uh, the Clare man with the Dublin accent. So um, my mother was from Clare. My father's people were Wicklow and I was born in Dundrum in 1959 and I'm the eldest of 10. I've got five brothers and four sisters and um uh, I have a good memory of going back, like I remember the old railway in Dundrum that went there where the, almost where the new shopping centre in Dundrum town centre is. So I'm fairly central in Dundrum. Um, and we had a great childhood growing up, like um, it was only a small terraced house, but like, you know, happy days and more innocent days and uh, kept ourselves amused and that. Kevin's college days were short-lived when you realised an arts degree wasn't for him. So I would have attended Sing Street then from second class all the way up to the Leaving Cert. And uh, great school in my time anyway. Um, fantastic, some fun, very, very good teachers. And uh, I enjoyed overall, I enjoyed my time there. And I would have got, I had a great English and Irish teacher, but I was better at the English and I would have got the honours English. And I I tried uh, university then. The father wanted me to be an accountant, but I, I was not good at maths. But uh, I'd done an arts degree in UCD. Well, I started one, but like I quickly realised that, that wasn't for me because at the end of it, I'd have to do a H-dip to be a teacher back in the 70s. An arts degree didn't get you anywhere. So I, I I finished up after three months, like, you know, and no regrets now, but I suppose at the time the parents were very disappointed. I would have been the first, and as it turned out, the last that went to university of the brothers and sisters. Following his short-lived college days, Kevin pursued life as a tradesman. After growing up around his dad, Larry Byrne, a well-known mechanic in the Dundrum area, Kevin felt he was good with his hands and decided to turn his focus to becoming a spray painter a trade in which he would spend 10 years honing his skills. Having grew tired of life as a tradesman, given his inability to differentiate between a cheap job and an expensive job, with his perfectionist mentality to blame, Kevin decided to register with an unemployment centre called Dolebusters. They got me to do a CV and I'd never done the CV before. So they rang me at home. I was living with my grandmother at the time in Dundrum and she said, yeah, you want it on the phone. There was no mobile phones then. And it was, uh, they said, you seem very keen to get a job. We'll set up an interview if you want. There's a packing job for Christmas gone locally. So I knew all the back laneways around Harcourt Road and Camden Street and that. So I thought it was some little factory shop. There were some shops there, little factories doing candles and things. So I said, sure, it's 40 pound on the dole. And I said, anything would be better than that. Kevin was invited to an interview. And before too long, something began to materialise. So they reckoned it'd take three months, but as it turned out, I had the job done in two months. And then I uh, 
kept myself busy. It was a small office then. I had no idea what, even though they were only around the corner from Sing Street. I didn't know. I knew they were a charity, but I had no idea what they'd done. So I very quickly learned what they were about and something was gelling for me. So the boss called me in after two months and said, like, I don't see you in the stores. What are you doing? So I said, I'm busy around the building, photocopying and moving filing cabinets and cleaning out stores and tidying things. And it was all type desk then, none of the modern open plan or anything. And uh, she said, well, there's no permanent job. So I said, ah, yeah, that's fine. Let's work week to week. So it was about five months later when she called me in again. She said, you know, there's no permanent job here. But she said, if I offered you a stores manager job, would you take it? So that's how I started in Concern in 1988. Two years on, Kevin sought some on-field experience and his first overseas trip soon followed. In about 1990, uh, I was approached by someone who could see more in me than I could see in myself and said, would you not approach Father Angus Fanouk and he'd be the chief executive, but he would have been in charge of HR at that time as well. And there was a short-term emergency in the first Gulf War in 1990, where we were in running camps on the Iraqi-Jordanian border. And... uh, it would only be for a short time uh, they were evacuating uh, different nationalities through Baghdad from Kuwait out through Jordan and Amman airport. So we were on no man's land on the border with a transit camp. And uh, I knocked on the door and he said, Ashley, you have no experience. And I said, well, how am I going to get experience unless you give me a chance? This is a short term program. You'll find out whether I have it or not. So I was sort of had made it up in my mind that I would like to find out for myself even whether I could hack this or whether it was another string to my bow in what I was working for because I very much believed in what I was working for. So he called me a couple of days later and she said to me, uh, I was chasing someone else, but they're not available. Uh, he would, this was on the Tuesday. He said, uh, you ready to go Friday? I said, yep, yeah, Grant. So I just dropped everything and went on the Friday. I was gone for six weeks. I arrived in the middle of the night in Queen Alia Airport in Jordan and not expecting anyone to meet me. The place was fairly deserted. But there was one person there from Concern who had gone ahead of me and they thought I might feel a bit lost. So my baggage didn't arrive with me. It was stuck somewhere else. Frankfurt. So I was up straight up into a camp doing 48 hour shift straight away, taking in double the, the long buses with 50 or 60 passengers and putting them into the different areas and registering them and that. And uh, yeah, I was in the same clothes for two weeks. So, but that didn't matter. Uh, you'd work to do in more important things. Having obviously impressed on his first overseas trip, Kevin was recommended for future work. His next overseas mission soon followed as the services were needed in the West African country of Liberia. At the time in Liberia, there was a civil war situation and Kevin was sent there as part of a small team of four 
noted in the national newspapers as a logistician. Now, to be honest, in 1991, I didn't even know what logistician meant. It's a much more common word now. So I looked it up in the dictionary and it's basically meant to me a wheeler dealer and a fixer and you make things happen and you get things done. So that reminded me of working in the car trade, like, you know, wheeling and dealing and all that. But so off I went and uh, that worked out very well and uh, we done some great work there. But I had to travel a lot to Sierra Leone next door on my own to try and get ships with our concerned goods to go into a war zone in Liberia. Fairly difficult, but got there, got there, managed to get ships to transport, transship our goods and that, mostly foodstuffs and that coming out from Ireland and being flown in from our emergency stores in Rotterdam and that. The overseas trips with Concern came thick and fast. Next up for Kevin was a visit to Somalia, where he was joined by Mary Considine. Mary had taken over from Kevin when he left Liberia, and so their experience showed, as together, they helped set up the famine response in Somalia when the civil war was at its most dangerous point. This trip proved to be Kevin's most memorable assignment. So off the two of us went, and we met with Father Jack Finucane in Nairobi at the Tree Cafe. Got a quick brief, and he was on his way home to give a brief, and he wasn't expecting us to be coming out that quick. But he said dire, dire circumstances, and he'd been in Ethiopia in '84. So he reckoned it was uh, as bad, and in a lot of ways it was as bad. So when we went, just the two of us, and uh, squatted in the UN uh, mission, we slept on their couches until I could organise some accommodation, everything was safety and having to watch out. Like, But gunfire was 24-7. The only time they stopped was about 7 o'clock in the morning when they'd be uh, having their breakfast, their fatir. So I'd slip out through the security on the gate and that, and I'd go down to the end of the street, Dirt Street, but it was in the centre of Mogadishu, and there was a, an old guy there to sell cigarettes, and I'd go down and get me a pack of the cigarettes at seven every morning while they were all having their breakfast, and uh, I had less fear of getting shot or anything like that. So what exactly is it like to work in the depths of a famine? One my question. Kevin explains. Like within a short space of time, Concern had over 40 people out there. Now the vast majority would be nurses because it was all medical. We set up feeding centres. People were dying in the queues in front of you. Um, horrific. And I remember one of the nurses had to get me to do it, uh, admit people. We couldn't do proper weights and measures and that it was on site and the worst of the worst got in and you'd have a big like an oil drum full of high protein food like a porridge mix and we could do 800 at a time and we'd be doing five or six sittings a day and this is a small outpost about 30 kilometers outside Mogadishu I was putting a roof back in the school that had been destroyed to turn it back into a school but to use it as a proper feeding center in the meantime and then so she called me over and I remember an old guy came up in front of me and he looked desperate. But I, she, her words to me, we can only take the worst of the worst. And bad and all as he was, and she did say priority is women and children, because uh, like a lot of things, she said men will always find a way. And that wasn't being uh, uh, 
gender inequality or anything like that. But uh, women and children uh, over there were, would find it harder to find any trace of food. So I turned him away and next thing I saw him going over sitting in the compound yard. There was a donkey in front of him and the donkey shot and I saw him picking it up and eating it. Ah, oh, I nearly lost it in my head. Like and The nurse saw it and turned around and she said, Kevin, I seen that. If he was in my queue, rest assured I would have made the same decision. So if you can't keep it together, you're no good to these people. So I said, give me two minutes. I went around the corner and had two or three quick fags and I made up my mind because she said, you may as well get on the next plane home. Go home if you can't help these people. Because you had to keep that blind. You had to pull down the blind so you couldn't get overly emotionally involved because you couldn't function. So I went back and carried on. On the very day Kevin was set to depart for home, he recalls a challenging incident that will live long in his memory. I was rushing to find a guest bunk on a Russian Antonov that was flying into Nairobi. And it was the only way I could make my connections um, because there was no, the airport was out of action. It was all just small flights or cargo flights. So um, we were leaving the Mogadishu and the driver was hurrying because it was a bit late. And next thing I, I saw a young fella getting his backside shot off for stealing an orange. Things were starting to come back a bit, a little bit of market starting. Oh, I got so furious. So I wanted to get out of the car and I wanted to approach the fellow who had the handgun. He was a self-appointed traffic warden. Took it on himself to blow the backside off a nine, ten-year-old just because he stole an orange. But I was held back by my own security. I was so angry, so angry. But... Uh, Quickly, anyway, I saw some local people got a wooden wheelbarrow and the hospital was in bits, it was destroyed, but they were bringing them somewhere, so I felt that he's getting treatment somehow. But that was just an example of man's inhumanity to man and uh, how it goes on. The nature of Kevin's work ensure the challenging trips didn't end there. Two years later then I found myself in Rwanda in the 94 emergency. Same thing, I came in after a bank holiday weekend on the Tuesday and next thing gang has asked me and I was gone on Friday. Next thing I was brought up, I was working in a camp. I was on my own with a local assistant uh, running a camp for 10,000 people up in the sticks in the mountains in Rwanda, about a, uh, northwest Tanzania, about a kilometre from the Rwanda border. And Uganda was just over in the other corner, over a river right beside me. So you're right in the very tip corner of the northeast of Tanzania. With what I saw coming across the river and coming in through the bushes from Rwanda, you know, men, women, children with machete wounds in their skulls and all that. But got on with that, I was three months up there and I don't recall meeting any other white person up there. Like, you know, and sure, out there you don't have a mirror, you don't look at the colour of your skin, we're all human beings. So that worked out very well for me and uh, then I was transferred. They, they never told me I was seconded to the World Food Programme, but I thought I was still working for Concern, but I was running the, what they call an extended delivery point, 
which means you're taking in and shipping out all the food for all the camps in the region. Now there was five camps and uh, Concern were running three of them. Other agencies were running the other two. So I can see, I should have realised I was working for the World Programme. You're impartial, of course you're impartial. Everybody needs their food and their distribution. So I was doing the truck and then the warehouse and then that night, about 60 people working under me. Sure, I wouldn't have wages some weeks uh, because I wouldn't get up from Dar es Salaam. Sure, it was all mountain roads and dirt roads. And uh, sure, I said, like, you know, sure, I've no money, you've no money. We'll get it when we get it. Let's just keep working. We'd, we'd be working seven days a week, seven in the morning till seven at night while there was light because there was intermittent electricity. Yeah, you couldn't rely on it. Working in environments like this naturally attracts conflict. Kevin recalls a food riot he found himself part of. And you were responsible for getting the food out because I knew from my own experience in the camp if you don't have that food distribution in place for the, there's always the possibility of a riot. And I remember one time I got myself a food riot and my assistant, Benmard, held me hand, which wasn't unusual in Africa. Like, you know, uh, if a person is your friend, male or female, they'd hold your hand walking down the street. It didn't mean anything else except that they were, you were friends. A lovely custom. So he held me hand and he said, if you say prayers, say prayers now, because he could see the swarm, the way it was coming. There was, there was always agitators and you'll always get bad eggs everywhere. And they were causing the food riot, but they reckoned it looked bad for us. But lo and behold, a couple of border post guards came out the customs thing and they had a little cell. They apprehended one or two and dragged them back to the jail. So the whole swarm turned away from us. But then the Tanzanian army arrived because uh, we, we had a cold on radio and we were able to get word out. But that was five o'clock in the afternoon when they arrived. This riot started at food distribution at nine in the morning. So what exactly is it like to return to family and friends? after enduring such tough, challenging experience overseas. Kevin believes back home in Ireland, his friends and family grew to understand his travel as the new norm and naturally adjusted to it. So it's give and take, like, you know, reality is reality wherever your two feet are planted and you change and adapt. Like there was an old saying there too, the only person who likes change is a baby with a dirty nappy. But you're, that's, we change and we adapt and like, uh, Overall, I, I didn't find it difficult, like, you know, uh, I was glad that some people wanted to listen, well, practically everybody wanted to listen, but like, if you've only got that couple of minutes to speak, that's fine, like, you know, people move on, different things distract different people. Now, as Kevin mans the phone line in his concern office on Camden Street, dealing with donors and queries, he can reflect on many great years dedicating his life to helping those most in need. I could have earned three times my salary, four times my salary, staying at my trade. But I wasn't happy anymore. I wasn't fulfilled. But I remember kicking my heels coming into work. I was on £80 a week and it was twice the doll. But it wasn't about money, the job satisfaction and the, that you were making a difference. And we do make a difference. So I get that same thing today, even though I mightn't be as nimble, but I still click my heels coming in in the morning and say, isn't it great to have an opportunity to do it all again? A Tale to Tell with Kevin Byrne was presented and produced by Gavin Dalton and was a School of Media production for TU Dublin.